0: Reading this morning is from the first book of Samuel, chapter 1, verses 1 to 29. That's 1 Samuel, chapter 1, beginning at the first verse. There was a certain man from Ramathame a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever that day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, He gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, Her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servants misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord." For all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered. Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favour in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord, then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. When her husband Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfil his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, After the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, her husband Elkanah told her. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. Mm. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son. "'until she had weaned him. "'After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, "'young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, "'an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, "'and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. "'When the bull had been sacrificed, "'they brought the boy to Eli, "'and she said to him, "'Pardon me, my lord,' As surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he shall be given over to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: few weeks ago, I came across an article in The Times by Matthew Paris, and it was titled Who's Having a Good or Bad War on COVID? Um, I love this kind of thing, Um, and it was a bit tongue-in-cheek, but he was trying to evaluate how people have done, who's done well, who's done badly, um, which leaders, um, which politicians have fared well or not in the crisis, which bishops intake of breath, um, which celebrities, you know, who gets the gold star, who gets the wooden spoon? Um, I'm pretty pleased that so far, as far as I can see, the world hasn't turned against Rishi Sunak um, because it's possible my life will get harder if they did. Um, But then we've seen it this week, haven't we, in more painful and serious terms in the US after the killing of George Floyd, but a similar set of questions, who has responded well Um, On Tuesday at the church prayer gathering, I talked about listening to the speech, the powerful speech by Keisha Lance Bottoms, the Atlanta mayor, uh, who has responded well, who has used the situation for their own gain. George Floyd, COVID-19, Hong Kong, you name the issue. I think what I'm saying at the moment is we are in a time where we are very, very aware of good leaders or bad leaders. And now, as we look at this part of the Bible and we start looking at this together, come back with me in time about 3,000 years to the start of 1 Samuel. God's people, Israel, have been through a period of complete turmoil. Sarah explained earlier they had been taken out of slavery in Egypt, Uh, they'd made it into the Promised Land, and then there is a period of about 200 years or so um, called the time of the judges, Um, and it's summarised in that book by these words, In those days Israel had no king, everyone did as they saw fit. Now, we might think we've had a a tricky couple of weeks in the UK with people trying to work out um, for themselves what exactly coming out of lockdown means. Um, Somebody in our house group put it, that um, it's like the time of the judges at the moment. But there's 200 years of national and spiritual life for God's people just spiralling downhill. And at times in the book of Judges, it's bordered on anarchy. And so we get to the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, the next part of that, and they are about leadership and leaders. And you can imagine why. Years of spiritual fragmentation, years of national disintegration. And it is time to ask, what kind of leader does God's people need? And the answer that we get, I think is really relevant for us today. And it's why we wanted to study this together. I think it can help orient us for the times we're in now, but I'll come back to that towards the end. For now, I want us just to dive in and to follow the story uh, and see uh, how it opens. Um, You get the opening in verse one with a certain man, and he's called Elkanah. He's not especially significant. He is from a pretty uh, unimportant town um, in Israel. So, even though there's this massive national crisis going on, a big story of God's people and how kind of disconnected they've become and everything that's resulted, the writer actually starts small a family situation, a certain man. And what the writer does in his opening is he gives us two scenes of conflict. Uh, The first is a family conflict. The second is a spiritual conflict. And he uses them just to give us the lie of the land. And by the end of the first um, part of the chapter, we really know the problems that God's people have uh, and some of the hints for God's way through. Um, So let's look at those two scenes. The first of them I've called a family stuck, a family stuck. So here's this man, Elkanah, and he has two wives. One is called Hannah and and the other is called Peninnah. And by the end of verse two, we know exactly what the problem is. Peninnah has children, but Hannah doesn't. Probably, Elkanah married Hannah, they weren't able to have children, and then he's decided to take uh, a second wife to continue the family line, and no surprise, this has caused problems. And the family conflict is between the two wives now they're a good believing family. Verse 3, every year they go up to worship at a place called Shiloh and Elkanah is there and he's doing his best in the situation that he's created for himself. Uh, he gives meat to, ha- uh, to Peninnah and all their children, um, i.e. he's doing his duty. He's not ne- neglectful or uncaring, but he gives more to Hannah and it's because uh, he loves her. Hannah, who has no children, um, Hannah, whom he loves, and whom we're told the Lord had closed her womb. Not being able to have children, whether for reasons known uh, or reasons not known, or because life circumstances have not allowed that to be a possibility or an availability, it is something that many women have known. And in Hannah's case, we're told it was the Lord who had closed her womb. And many f- might find that very difficult to hear. I think what we're meant to sense here are the layers of pain and frustration that Hannah faces. So not only can she not have children, but Peninna uses that against her. Twice uh, she's called Hannah's rival, who kept provoking her in verse 6 and verse 7. You can imagine, perhaps it's knowing that Elkanah favours Hannah. Perhaps it's needing to establish her position by putting someone else down. Family rivalries can be deeply ingrained. They become habits, reflex actions. And it provokes Hannah till she wept and would not eat. She experiences that physically and bodily. You can probably imagine, can't you, just how much it must have beaten her down. And bless him, Elkanah does his best. Verse eight, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? Now, I'm really fond of Elkanah, um, uh, but you know a husband has stopped listening properly when he thinks he is the answer. So here we are and we're really being. why we've been given this this scene of family conflict it's more than just Hannah's personal painful experience it's meant to bring to mind a whole pattern of key women in the, the history of God's people when we've seen women in this situation before it's always a moment when something is going to happen Um, In films, um, there's a kind of romantic comedy when um, the main character has to move from the city um, to a small town. Often it's the case that they're going back to like a hometown uh, that they came from. And you know, at that point in the film, that when when they have to make that move, that something is going to happen. Normally they're going to meet somebody who's going to change their life. So when we meet Hannah um, in the situation that, that she's in, it's, it's, it's kind of like that. You know something always happens at this point in Bible terms. And it brings to mind Sarah of Abraham and Sarah who had to wait so many years for their promised child. It, it brings to mind Rebecca uh, of Isaac and Rebecca who had to wait 20 years uh, before the twins Jacob and Esau were born. And then of Rachel uh, of Jacob and Rachel, who's really most similar to Hannah. Um, Rachel and Leah, you might remember, had a bitter, bitter rivalry, two wives. Leah had children and Rachel didn't. So Rachel is here, who, uh, Rachel had a husband's love, uh, but not um, his family. And that's just like Hannah's situation. And in all of these, God's people were stuck they couldn't move forward on their own. And in some cases, particularly that of, uh, of Rachel and, and Jacob, they were, it was a mess. And that is the feeling of this opening. Year after year, we're told, in verse 3, year after year in verse 7, Hannah is desperate and sad and stuck. And they as a nation are desperate and sad and stuck. The writer is giving us the problems of the nation played out in a domestic setting. There's no harmony in this land. They're divided. And we're back where we were with Jacob and Rachel and Leah. And every time we see a woman in this position, we always know that something is going to happen. God is going to do something. But we're not quite there yet. Um, there is a, a second scene of conflict that we need to see first. And that I've called God's leader in a mess, God's leader in a mess. So we move from year after year to one day in Shiloh and we get the scene here from two different angles. First of all, we see it from Hannah's point of view. So presumably, finally driven to her wits end, she can't stand to be with the family anymore. So she gets up and she goes to the Lord's house and she prays. And this is what she says in verse 11. Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. She's in anguish and she's weeping. She can't do anything. There's a real stuckness here. But she is looking to the Lord. You could sum up her prayer as, uh, Lord, see me. Lord, don't let me be invisible to you. And more than that as well, when she says, look on your servant's misery, it's a straight echo of God looking on the misery of his people when they were in Egypt back in um, Exodus chapter 3. Hannah is crying out to be seen just as God's people were seen. So that's from Hannah's point of view. Then we get it from Eli's point of view. And Eli is a priest and a judge of Israel. Now, he's been in the job for 20 years um, at this point. He actually got mentioned right uh, on at the beginning of the chapter, and he's dropped in with his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Now, we're going to find out in a couple of weeks that Hophni and Phinehas are spiritually corrupt. They're priests and they're awful. Um, But the writer kind of drops it in, just as though you'd know of their reputation. Hophni and Phinehas, oh, Um, It's a a bit like, um, uh, perhaps this might be for the the platformers and the pathfinders, Um, if you've read the How to Train Your Dragon book, there's a character called Stoic the Vast. And whenever they introduce him, it's always, Stoic the Vast, oh, hear his name and tremble, ugh, ugh. Um, It's a bit like that. You imagine Hoffney and Phineas, they're the worst. And Eli is their dad, and he's in charge of them. And Eli sees Hannah's And she's there. He sees her lips moving. He doesn't hear anything. And what does he decide? He decides she's drunk. How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Now Hannah comes straight back at him. Not so, my Lord, Hannah said. I'm a woman who is deeply troubled. I've not been drinking wine or beer. I'm pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. And I've called it a conflict because there's two different interpretations of what's going on. One is that Hannah is devout, and the other is that Hannah is a drunk. And we know the truth, that Hannah is there crying out in prayer, but Eli, who's a priest, can't spot someone in his own church praying. And Eli, who is a judge of Israel, can't judge things properly. Do you see this this second scene? It communicates so much of where they're at that it's like a symbol, a a symbolism. Symbols can be powerful uh, in telling you where a nation is at. I wrote last week that the death of a black man under the knee of a white police officer has become a powerful symbol. And here is Hannah, a quiet woman of faith, pouring out her heart to God. And she's seen as a drunk. She's seen as a worthless person by the judge of all Israel. It tells you, doesn't it, the scope of Israel's problems. So do you see the two scenes? If you imagine this almost like a film, we've had these these opening scenes. The first is like a montage of year after year, Hannah's plight, um, just like God's people's plight in the past. And then you get the one close-up scene with Hannah completely misjudged by um, Israel's judge here's a woman in desperate need here is a nation in desperate need here are God's leaders in desperate need and they are stuck and unable to move forward and that is when things begin to change so lastly God sees God hears God acts And the close of the chapter really moves swiftly. They return home. Hannah becomes pregnant. Uh, Her prayer is answered. And when the baby is weaned, so a couple of years, two or three, and probably Hannah then waits that long and then takes him and presents him to Eli. And I love to think there's a kind of a bit of sass in her voice when she fronts up to Eli, says verse 26, pardon me my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood beside you praying to the Lord. you imagine her holding up the baby and going, so how do you like that? And the big point the writer is trying to make is God has acted. And four times in these verses, um, when Hannah speaks, The words are a play on asking for the Lord. And Samuel's name is a play on asking and being heard by the Lord. We're told the Lord remembered her um, in verse 19. The Lord will make good his word in verse 23. The Lord has granted me in verse 27. God has used this childless woman to bring a child into the world who is gonna change the direction of his people. He's done it before. And in fact, he will do it again in the history of God's people. So if you think for a moment, just as Hannah gives birth to Samuel, who is a prophet who will be the forerunner to a king, King David. So some years later, a barren woman, Elizabeth, will give birth to a prophet, John the Baptist, who will be a forerunner to the greatest king, Jesus. Now why are we being told all of this? Why does the story open in this way? I said earlier on this is a big moment in God's people's history. The writer wants us to know God is at work. He sees the state of his people. He sees Hannah just as he saw Rachel, as he saw Rebecca, as he saw Sarah. He sees them stuck year after year. He sees the mess that his people get themselves into. And he sees the spiritual state of his judge and his priests uh, and he sees how bad it is and God sees and he hears and he acts even when no one would have thought it was possible. I can't imagine anyone thought this little family in Israel had any significance at the time. And I said at the start that, that 1 and 2 Samuel, God is going to teach his people about leadership and what follows just to to sort of stretch it out a little, they are going to see huge change in the coming years. God is going to bring them a king. Uh, The tragedy um, along the way is that by chapter 8, God's people think that they need a king who is like the other nations. They want one who is strong and aggressive and powerful. But what the writer is trying to show in these early chapters is that the one they really need is God himself. And he's the one they actually have, it's God who is at work. There's really no one else like him. And that's why we wanted to look at the, these opening chapters together in these next few weeks. I'm so aware at the moment, we're all evaluating leaders left and right. Who's having a good war or not on COVID-19? How is your favourite leader fared? Who is doing well? Who's not getting it right? Who has said the, the right things uh, about George Floyd's? Uh, Who is going to lead us into the changed world of the future? Now more than ever, I think it's the time to get in our minds uh, that God is at work. There is no one like him. I wonder if we, do we believe that God sees, God hears, God acts? I encourage you to to read with us over these next few weeks. Let's kind of dig into this in small groups and in conversations and ask one another what you make of it. I, I cannot stress how important I think it is to get this right. If we are going to reorient ourselves for the world that is coming, we need to know that it is God who is at work. Amen.